Welcome to Tab Storytellers. I'm Abby Patobay, and I, um, I'm here with my co-host and our amazing guest, Jen Smith, and um, my co-host, Jen Ferrari, here with the Jens. And we're here to talk about teaching for artistic behavior. It's an art education pedagogy, methodology, uh, foundational belief structure for how we engage with kids in art education, founded upon three pillars of the child is the artist, the classroom is the studio, and we explore what do artists do. And Jen is here yeah. to talk more about the podcast. Absolutely. So thank you everyone so much for joining us on Tab Storytellers. This podcast was established to promote dialogue among art teachers who seek best practices in contemporary art education and to advocate for tab pedagogy and practice. This podcast, which we always lovingly refer to as a tabcast, is published once a month and is a place to share our tab stories with one another. These stories can come from tab educators, administrators, community members, researchers, and many, many more sources. From how we found tab to implementation in the classroom, to advocacy for your program, to dispelling myths about tab practice, we cover it all. For information after this tab cast, you can navigate to teachingforartisticbehavior.org. There you'll find information, inspiration, and incredibly helpful items such as teacher-created resources and an access to an online community of TAB educators called Mighty Networks. All right, Abby, going to hand it back over to you. So welcome, audience. Um, Jen's plural and myself, this is our second round attempt at this um, <laughs> because we had an, a riveting and engaging almost hour and a half conversation of amazing content and got to the end and realized we had not hit record and while Jen Ferrari and I would like to pretend this is the first time this has happened it is not it is at least the second time it has happened and so um, we are so grateful <laughs> that Jennifer Smith is here and is being gracious enough to interview with us twice to bring an amazing podcast around um, all sorts of great tab things um, full disclosure full disclosure Jennifer Smith has also been my kid's art teacher. And so my children have been in her tab classroom. So I've seen it up close and personal and one of my best friends. And so, uh, Jen, welcome to Tab Storytellers. And uh, please introduce yourself and your beginning of your tab journey. How did you get here? <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, excited to do round two here. Um, so my name is Jennifer Smith. I work at the University of Wyoming Laboratory School, which is a K-8 multi-age level outdoor education, project-based learning, all of the acronyms school. Um, we are conveniently housed on the University of Wyoming campus um, in the College of Education building. Um, which really just means that we are situated in, in such a way that we get to help teach pre-service teachers. Um, we have a great relationship with the College of Education um, and our students are super used to being asked questions, um, being engaged by adults and um, being observed. Um, I've worked here at the University of Wyoming Lab School for three years. Prior to that, I was a master teacher at the Art Museum here and then have taught for five years elementary school in Southern Colorado and two years of high school in Pinedale. Um, so this is like my 10th year of teaching. This feels momentous. Uh, my tab journey really started, um, I would say in grad school, really with the first impression of like, we're learning all these different pedagogies and what is tab. Um, and so in grad school, we had to go and observe different classrooms and different types of curriculum. And I remember going to this one, <laughs> tab teachers classroom in, in Portland, Maine. And 
it was it felt like utter other utter chaos however um due to just personal conversation before this podcast started it actually was in october right around halloween so this is kind of like ready <laughs> registering some some bells here now that i've been a teacher for for 10 years i'm like oh yeah that probably wasn't the best time to go in and observe that tab teacher because they could have been at the end of a unit it could have been a free choice friday it could, i i have no idea but what i saw was little hot dogs out of pipe cleaners and pipe cleaner glasses and and kind of like nonsensical stuff without structure so you know, my first experience with TAB was like, okay, well, everything on paper sounds amazing, but seeing it in practice with this one teacher doesn't sound so great. Um, and so I like left with this feeling that there's got to be something more to this, even though like what I'm witnessing doesn't make me feel super comfortable. But when the the rubber really met the road was my first year of teaching. I was working at a um, Title I school, a lot of my students came from really high trauma backgrounds. Um, much like any first year teacher, I feel like every hour of every day was just behavior management. Um, and I got to this point where I was like, oh my God, I just wanna teach art. Um, but also another part of that too was like, I was noticing horrible behaviors based upon the projects that I was assigning. And, and I had created some of my own projects, but I also was using projects from previous teachers as like a crutch my first year. And so I like, will never forget this one project where we're just showing depth of field and it's like pretty classic, like landscape kind of thing. You've got five trees, trees start to recede and get smaller in the background. And as soon as I presented the projects and thought that I had this really like ironclad rubric as far as how I was gonna assess it, my students immediately were like, well, couldn't I just draw monkeys and like they get smaller in the background or what about if I do kitties or what about if I do this and you know at first I was like oh but this is what I'm assessing and this is what my principal is observing me on and like no I asked for trees and then I started to think about it I was like actually that's totally logical like if I really just want them to demonstrate the skill then why does it really matter what it looks like um and, and then of course I had a lot of kids who would just like try to copy what I had done as my example piece. And I hated that. Um, and what I noticed is just like a lot of the kids, like some of them just stopped trying or disengaged immediately. And then the behaviors got worse. So by my second year of teaching, it was like a full fledged two weeks before going into the school year and like pacing around thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can be an art teacher. This kind of stinks. Uh, I just decided to go for it. And I flipped my whole entire classroom and curriculum upside down those two weeks prior to the school year starting. And I remember my principal at the time, she was really gracious and believed in me, thankfully, but was really nervous for me in that first semester of school that second year. So I know that um, because my kids experienced the lab school, and they experience having you as a teacher. And I've, I've had you, you work with educators um, in the Pacific region for NAEA's summer regional conference that you have really, I feel like giftedness in integrating art uh, into other, with other content areas. And I think that sometimes people get to tab and they go, well, I don't know how we can integrate tab and another subject and still be true to what tab is um how do you how do you I guess I mean I also know that like sometimes language isn't the same and so if 
if you could kind of walk us a little bit through like what integration means to you and then what that looks like for you, that would be amazing. Yeah, so um, I guess the best way to start this conversation is just talking about the fact that there are, uh, there is language for different types of integration. Um, and when I teach uh, and or adjunct a class here at UW for our integration um, for elementary teachers, there's a great article written by Bressler that talks about four different basic types. And the first one is subservient. The second one is co-equal. Then there's effective and social. And the main type of integration that often happens is subservient. So that was what we would know as like a teacher is teaching a project. Maybe it's about science. And then they make this little picture at the end to explain something like a perfect example is I've seen on the wall in the hallway, they're learning about layers of a canopy and all the students have like a, a template of like a tree cut out and then they've labeled it for like the canopy and then they've got the forb and the underbrush and so that would be subservient um art integration because the art happens last it's kind of like the dessert instead of the main course and it's brought into the project at the end right it's not and it's also not as equal to the science part of it because oftentimes they're not talking about art or the language of it or you know the techniques that artists use to show a landscape or how do you show distance that would be like a perfect time to kind of talk about some of those things and so that's what you'll see in a lot of schools is subservient art integration and they rely pretty heavily on the art teacher either to finish the art project that goes along with the science project or not at all which sometimes is worse is that it's just like this cutesy thing on pinterest that they find and then they replicate it's not bad and it still gets the students to be able to craft and do something but it needs to be understood that it is completely different from co-equal integration where co-equal integration is really much the same as co-teaching is like saying for myself as an art teacher, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to present the lesson from the beginning, from the onset with the science teacher, both collaboratively talking about where the overlaps are and engaging in an art project from the beginning as they're also learning about the science. And so they're happening kind of simultaneously where 50% of the cognitive load is about art and 50% of the cognitive load is about science. And then together, both of those pieces or elements create this really beautiful product. And so, you know, in the, in the teaching world, the best way that I could mm, compare this to is if anybody's familiar with PBL, which is project-based learning, um, is, is where students do this huge um, real life project for the duration of maybe it's a week or a month or their whole entire semester. Um, but all of these components are supposed to kind of come beautifully together. For me, I, I think this is where I need to really be honest with my own personal intentions and thought, you know, I strive to land in this co-equal integration kind of chapter every single time I plan a lesson. It's not easy. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of thought. Um, and it, it, it can't happen all of the time. Uh, next is effective integration. Effective integration is really talking about like how we use art for social emotional learning. Um, so how we can calm the central nervous system. That can be something really simple. It's pretty much from the standpoint of saying like art is a way to express ourselves and to connect with our humanness. 
Um, and so effective art integration is oftentimes used with trauma-informed teaching. It's often used as social emotional learning skills um, or also in like um, behavior therapy. Uh, and then the last one is social. Social is really just saying like, it's those pretty little products that are lined up in the hallway. Um, you know, for parent-teacher conferences, we have parent-teacher conferences next week. Uh, there are a bunch of teachers that'll have kids make arts and crafts kind of projects that go up as decoration or meant to be seen or meant for like the public to kind of engage with. So those are the four types of integration. Like I said, I try to stay in like the co-equal lane. It's not always easy <laughs> and it takes a lot of floor planning. Um, yeah, so I, I guess like one thing that I should also say too is that my journey for integration started a long, long time ago. Like I, my undergrad degree is in German and then my master's degree is in art education. And I also studied studio art. So it was a second major in undergrad. And I could never choose between this facet of myself of being like an artist and a doer and I'm gonna create everything with my hands. And then also being this intellectual and being curious about other subject matters or how things kind of like come together or connect. And so part of it is really just organic to who I am as a person. And then the other part of it is just like part of my path and my history, like that first school that I worked at, a lot of the kids were in the red with math and writing. And so they were at um, third tier intervention. And so it got to the point where us essentialists, all the art, um, music PE, we had to find ways to help integrate some of their learning into our classrooms, which that was more voluntold. Um, but there were really organic ways in which it, it started to overlap. So once I, I found a way to make it authentic, then it kind of became something that has grown into how I teach now. So that doesn't happen. I mean, so when you're doing this planning, um, and I, this is, this is one of those things where I've been in situations where I've been like working with people who are not super interested in having conversations around what they're doing in their classrooms. And I'm not, I'm not trained in other content areas kind of thing. I mean, I, I been teaching long enough, you know, I have some knowledge, but they're not, it's not my content kind of thing. And they're not my standards that I'm not super familiar with them. What does collaboration look like um, when you're working with other teachers in setting this up? Because I'm imagining that there's, you're working in, with other teachers more as a team. Yeah. And it, it, it definitely is a team. It's definitely a collaboration. Our school values it it's one of our core values so we do have built-in time to try to make this happen and it is a common agreement and understanding that we are going to work together um both an agreement and an expectation um because i know that in other schools it's all too often people come down to the art teacher and they're like hey like we're learning about fairy tales in second grade and you know, maybe you could do a project on fairy tales and there's really no regard to our curriculum or our pacing or what works for us. It's almost like this insinuation of like, hey, I just gave you information on what we're working on. And if you want to do what's best for students, you'll drop everything all at once and you'll help them make pictures of castles and dragons and 
whatever else. And so oftentimes that's very off-putting to an art teacher because you've got your own stuff that you're working on and it's extremely stressful. And it kind of stinks that there's this notion that like, oh, I, I'm the one responsible for this collaboration or for this integration, but yet when do I get to ask you to like integrate art or talk about color theory when you're doing science experiments or, you know, use art as integration within their classroom. Cause oftentimes that doesn't happen and it makes people pretty stalwart in their, in their decision to not try it. Um, and so I am in a unique position because we have it built into our schedules. It's an expectation, it's an agreement. And most of my colleagues here believe that it's what's best for the students. It's not perfect. There are still times where I often feel like as the art teacher, I am often doing a lot of work, but I do have support. And so part of that means that, you know, we have these large curriculum maps um, that are on a four-year rotation. Um, I'm thinking specifically right now about middle school that has multi-age level classrooms. And so they have like these big units that have always happened in, in second trimester that are these inquiry projects. And I know ahead of time what the four-year rotation is going to be. So about two years ago, when your daughter was doing Silk Road integration, um, you know, I knew exactly what was going to need to happen. I knew all of their standards that they were targeting. We had time to discuss like what the rotations were going to be. Um, every single stop on the Silk Road, there were about, uh, oh, what, like six different stops. They each had a rotation in the art room. So it was an extra two hours a week where we got to do like a short and quick project. And then at the end of that unit, um, we had about two weeks where I could go upstairs and I had time in my schedule to help them like recreate these stops on the Silk Road. So, you know, yeah, it's a gift when somebody values it enough to say, hey, I'm going to make this part of your student contact time. And not only I'm going to make it part of your student contact time, but I'm going to make sure you have time to meet as co-teachers. Like, my first year here, we actually had subs for a whole entire day and we had a catered lunch. Like we ordered Chinese food, all of the middle school teachers and essentialists got together in a different room on campus and we got to just co-plan this whole entire eight week project, which is beautiful. But like I said, integration doesn't have to happen at that magnitude for it still to be considered integration. You know, it's, I'm, I've been listening to all of these um, things that you're sharing about integration, and I'm doing some research right now into my second master's. And one of the things in the research that I was finding is I'm looking into like administrative and school community perspectives of um, like art teachers and programs and things of that nature. And when you were talking about the different types of art integration, and I think it was the social, and please correct me if I'm mistaken, the art that's lined up in hallways, I feel that things of that nature that are more visual and supposed to be, you know, that school art, pretty aesthetic, that is meant to be just viewed and um, pleasurable to look at, is kind of what has come to be expected of art being integrated into like the schools from like an administrative and wider school community perspective, not necessarily art teacher. But I'm curious because I'm very interested in obviously advocacy for um, arts and art integration. How can we help to people to see 
the importance of those other forms of integration and how can we, maybe we're already doing some of these things, but like, how do we, how do we communicate that to other people that co-equal and, and effective type of integration? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it first starts with the desire to know, right? Like I have colleagues that are like, Hey, like, how can I do this better? And so part of me is like, well, if you, if you really want to engage in a conversation, like I'd love to do that. Maybe it can be something at a staff meeting. Maybe you're somebody who's on a leadership team and you could be like, Hey, I wonder if it would be okay for me to share this piece, this reading that talks about different ways to integrate. Um, like I know my principal sends like an article every week with the messenger that she sends out to all of the faculty. Um, so sometimes it could be as simple as that, like, Hey, I'm going to sneak this little thing in there because it feels important to me. Um, but I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little personal story and this is different from our first recording. So it'll be new to you. Jen. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but, I love it. Yeah. Um, so last spring I had three practicum students and a student teacher at the same time. Um, and that's mm -hmm. in addition to whichever other student teachers might be floating in, um, to just kind of observe the classes in essentials, which I should clarify at my school, we call art PE music essentials because we believe that they're essential to being human. Um, and we refrain from using the term specials. So if you hear me say essentials, that's really what I'm referring to. Um, and so in the last probably about six weeks of our school year last year, there was um, a first and second grade multi-age level classroom that was super curious in how to rehydrate clay. So what had happened was is that I had all this clay and the students had made all these projects and I had run out of time and I had like left a bag or two of clay open. I forgot to close it. I didn't stay late after school. And of course, after a couple of days, it's just sitting in the back of the classroom. I go to use it again with the littles and realize that all of the clay is dry. So they're kind of perturbed and frustrated with me, which they had every right to be. And they're like, don't we have any other fresh clay? And how do we, how do we use this again? Because you always keep saying that we can recycle our projects. So how do we do that? And so I decided that that could be a learning opportunity. And this is an example of where the integration wasn't something huge, but it really felt relevant to their understanding of the process. Cause I would say to them, oh, well, you know, this is now greenware and it needs to be rehydrated and, you know, we won't have workable clay for a little while. And they're kind of, they were really pushing back like, okay, but why Miss Smith? Like why, why? And like, or for example, like they would make a project and they would fire it in the kiln and then become bisqueware. And they're like, well, why can't I recycle this? Um, and so what ended up happening is that one day I just had this like wild hair that I was like, okay, I'm going to slow down the learning here for the sake of doing something kind of exploratory. And, and so this is where my integration comes in is that I often use the scientific process to lead our inquiry, to be able to understand our art materials better, because I feel like that's what a good artist does is that if we understand how the material can be used, then we can also understand how we can manipulate it. So I decided to make this visible for the kids. And this included my student teacher who thought I was crazy. She's like, I don't really know what's happening here. <laughs> you know, I made her the documentarian. So she had to photograph everything. We um, recorded what the kids were saying for the purpose of trying to catch this learning that isn't invisible, but is just so juicy. And so what I did is that I had um, like one of those 
plastic school lunch trays that we used to have in the cafeterias. And I put on the tray clay in various stages. So I had some crushed pulverized dry clay. I had um, some malleable clay, like workable clay. I had greenware, bisqueware, um, and then glazedware. And so I had all of those stages of clay lined up on the lunch tray. And then when the kids came in, I kind of hyped it up to be like, I need you to kind of be detectives and figure this out and figure out what ha what's happening. And so I nominated one person to be blindfolded. And the person who was blindfolded was allowed to touch the stuff that was on the tray, but everybody else that wasn't blindfolded was not allowed to touch it, but they could relay back visual information or visual cues to the person who has experienced it through sensory. And so the first thing that happened is, you know, of course there's lots of giggles, but what surprised me is that the kids who were observing were all equally interested, even though they could see what was on the tray. And so, you know, it started with like, what does the powdery clay feel like? And then they were talking about how it, it feels kind of silky to the touch on the hands. And um, if you like rub it together, it starts to break apart more. And then the kids are relaying back to it. Yeah, it's kind of like light gray, almost whitish in color. So as they're saying all these things, my student teacher is taking a picture, recording it. And then on a big poster board, I'm starting to write down all of these adjectives that are helping describe the clay and how it feels. And then I also had the student who is blindfolded like pick up the clay and see if it made a sound. Like, is there another way for us to tell where the clay is? And then at the end of that, they organized it in the order um, of, of what they thought like the stages of clay were. Um, and it, it was hmm. super interesting to hear their relevations, but what this turned into was like the next time they came in, you know, we started asking the question, well, like, okay, how do you take this powdery clay and get it to be malleable clay? And so then they had a bunch of hypotheses and they were like, well, maybe you just add water to it. And I was like, oh, okay, like how much water? And they're like, oh, I don't really know. So then I decided that we were just gonna continue this idea of an experiment and I just gave them these little, they're like spice jar cups. And I was like, okay, well, you're gonna have a recorder. Somebody's gonna record the information. There's gonna be one person who does it and um another person who's just going to kind of observe and see what they're noticing and what they started to do is that they started to pour the water into the dry clay and then one kid's working it with their hands and they're like oh it's way too slimy this is too slippery like way too much water and then other kids who are like oh i didn't put enough water in here so that led to the question of like well how much do we need which became these i don't know somewhere but it became these like this discussion about ratios like we need one or two parts clay to one part water. And what does that look like? And how does, how can we make a bigger batch versus a smaller batch? And this ended up being, I mean, I, I literally let it take six weeks because the kids were so engaged with it and they thought it was so fascinating and interesting to rehydrate the clay. So in this situation where I would have normally had to load up my car and haul all of these pounds of clay over to the high school to put it in the pug mill and have it recycled, um, the kids just helped me with the whole entire process and they thought it was absolutely fascinating. But meanwhile, what do we have as a product? We just have these like little recipe cards where they each had done a recipe card of like how to rehydrate clay. Um, they had their own hypothesis and then they had like their bag of clay that they had personally rehydrated. And we did eventually turn it into a project. But meanwhile, like 
where's the visual evidence to show that we've done all of this work? You know, so one mm. of the things that I ran into is that, you know, I did have one parent who was extremely frustrated because she was like, where is my child's pretty artwork and why is nothing coming home? And you must not have been doing anything noteworthy whatsoever. Um, and I, I just like, you know, just being like, I just don't understand, like, how come he doesn't have anything really for this whole entire semester? And although empathetic to her, I just kept thinking, yeah, but like, if you had been here, if you had been a fly on the wall, you would have known how incredible this learning just was. And at the end of last semester, I had this art show. So what I decided to do long answer to your short question is that I had taken all of that documentation we had gathered between my student teacher and myself and we had little recordings of the kids talking about their ahas we had pictures we had their cards and so I just made this huge bulletin board and I put it under the guise of studio habits of mind of saying like hey this is how artists interact with the world and like this is mm -hmm. How we make art is part of it is exploring materials and figuring out what the the bounds or limitations of it is and and then I just hung all of that stuff up as well as typed out some of the kids quotes or comments and it is time consuming mm -hmm. but it was one of those moments where I had a bunch of parents afterwards that came up to me and they're like whoa this is so cool you know and then their teachers came up and they're like no wonder why understood ratios like I couldn't figure out why they got it but because it was kinesthetic whole brain learning they understand that math component way sooner than they probably would have as like a first or a second grader so yeah I mean and and part of that comes from the fact that like my sister is um an early childhood educator and she has been teaching preschool for oh 16 plus years and has her master's in early childhood education and a lot of the the pedagogy that she works in is Reggio Emilio which is very much based in documentation and the child is the advocate and the main person that is responsible for their learning so it, it partners and dovetails really well with this notion of like the child is an artist and really mm -hmm. part of our job is to like watch and see and document the learning that is already organically happening as they experience these materials and work on these projects because as a tab educator you get trained to the point where you can see it and you know mm -hmm. that even if that kid's going home with one project that you know the parent's probably going to be like what is that that you were present for all of their decision making and thought process and problem solving and so really part of our advocacy is trying to find ways to just like capture that just a little bit. Um, and mm -hmm. I am getting ready to do this again. Abby knows she can speak to this as a parent, but um, I've taken that documentation to next level where I've made a, a newsletter for my whole school. And I try to keep it to one page per grade level. And I'm using air quotes because grade level for us is multi-age. Um, and my student teacher helped me with it and was like, whoo, this is a lot of work. But we would just use... Um, kind of like the the sequence of both like studio habits of mind but also visual thinking strategies of like see think wonder and I would mm -hmm. use that as like a template for how I was going to set up that one newsletter page and it started with see like these are the things that we're observing as artists and we're curious about here's the things that we're questioning here's some of the problems we came up with and then I try to include a couple pictures of the kids working and then always at least three to five quotes from the kids directly 
so that people can hear like mm -hmm. what really profound things these kids say. And I must yeah. say that as an art educator who aspired to doing newsletters and maybe two of the 18 years I taught might have created them. <laughs> I've never, I, as a parent receiving them, they are phenomenal. And I, um, it, it is really one of those things where when we communicate with our colleagues and our administrators and our parents, it really does make a difference in having upfront ways of having conversations with parents or other colleagues who don't really understand what's happening in the classroom when they don't have a series of projects show up on the wall. And so, you know, it is, it's a really, it's an, a really important aspect of that whole thing. I also think the, oh, go ahead, Jen. Well, I was just going to say it's exhausting. You know, when I was in grad mm -hmm. school, my professor always told me like, one of the hardest things of being an art teacher is being an advocate for art education. And I, I thought, well, art's in school and art's great. Like, obviously what I'm studying it, well, how much advocacy am I going to have to do? Cause I kept thinking I'm kind of an introvert, like, I just don't see myself going out there and being in a protest or, you know, going to a federal building to talk about why art is important. But, you know, over these last 10 years, I started to realize it it comes in small doses. And that starts with like yeah. protecting and advocating the space for my students and, you know, on ground level basis, helping them communicate to their teachers, to their parents, like, here's the cool stuff that I'm doing. I, ha I had a first grader last week who um, we have this habit of doing first five, which is working in our sketchbooks. And then afterwards, um, they get to share and they're now so obsessed with sharing, which aka is critique, little do they know sometimes, um, that I've had to have like a rotating schedule to say, hey, you share on Mondays and you share on Wednesdays and you share on Fridays, because otherwise it's going to like take our whole entire 45 minute class period. And we took a break for parent-teacher conferences. And and one kid was like, oh, I'm kind of glad we're not sharing Miss Smith. Like, I'm, I'm a little tired. And then this other kid's putting her book away. And she's like, yeah, except for that's learning. Like, that is art. Like, we are doing it. <laughs> that's great when they come with the language to advocate for themselves. They're like, yeah, we are. We are doing this. We are learning. I mean, that's one of my my ponderances is often I wonder if I were if someone were to ask my students you know what are you learning what are you doing in art class I wonder if they would use that same language that we practice of the habit because we use the studio habits as well and I also have a newsletter that I use to communicate out to the community about what we're doing through that language but I often wonder if they would yeah. advocate in the same way I think that's a really curious musing because I think what I'm starting to see is and what I already know is that a good program takes a while to build, like whether you're a yeah. tab teacher or not, it, it takes a while to get to know your students, to have the relationship for them to get used to how you organize your materials. But, you know, I'm going to have a not so humble moment. <laughs> and it's like, I've just seen so much growth in my students yeah. this last like year and a half and their language in particular and the way mm -hmm. that they talk to each other has absolutely blown me away to the point where, you know, previously I, I just had a formal op observation this morning and it's like, I could have bribed the kids to say some of the things that they said. And, you know, it, it's one of those moments where my principal's like, 
oh my god did they just say that and I'm like yeah that that was <laughs> that was the of their own volition um and part of it is just I think really finding ways to to practice it, to practice the communication, to practice the discussion, to use the words. Like today we were just talking about envisioning and making sure that we're using that language of like great artists mm -hmm. are able to envision and here's what it might look like. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really, really fascinating, especially knowing that there are people out there that doubt like, well, if I don't specifically and really overtly teach this language or overtly teach this skill, then the students are never going to learn it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and that would be a reason why somebody may say like, I don't know if I could ever be a tab teacher because it feels too important to me that they're going to learn this language. But yet like I've got a kindergartner a week ago who is like showing her sketchbook and she's like, I drew a haunted house and she personified it with like a face and a mouth and eyes. And this other kid's going to give her feedback. And he's like, I wonder what it would be like. And this is the same verbatim what they're saying. I wonder what it would be like if you were to add a fence in front of and around your haunted house, because, you know, that might make it like set the scene, like make it look a little bit more creepy. Mm -hmm. And so she's like nodding her head. She's like, yeah, that maybe is a great idea. And then I asked the follow up question, like, oh, how would you show this fence that goes around the house? And the first kid who had suggested it was like, oh, yeah, well, that's pretty easy. Like, you're going to put it in the front of the house, lower on the page, because that's the area where it shows that it's in front. And then the fence, you're just going to draw it on the sides. And then another kid's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you could draw the, the fence, like, behind the house, but you can draw it, like, going up to the top of the page and then coming back down and around. And then all of a sudden, out of out of nowhere, this other kindergartner gets up and he's like, no, 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 that cannot happen. He's like, what you need to do is you need to draw the fence in front. And then as it goes along the sides, it's going to get smaller. And, and he's like, and then you can't draw what's behind the house because you can't see what's behind the house. And he's like, and if you were to draw the fence all the way up to the top of the page and around, then it would look like it's floating because that's the part of the picture that's the sky. And mind you, have we had a single conversation about like a skyline and a horizon line and foreground and background? And no, not really. But it's come up in conversation as we've been doing these critiques and we're just kind of like, well, what should they put in the background? Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? Like, what does this picture need? And so those are things that like, yeah, obviously this kid is sharp, but a lot of these kids are sharp. They just need a, a moment to be able to like, express some of their thinking and their thoughts and have that thinking and metacognition validated as saying like yeah actually yeah. this is part of the creative process I love that you're having that experience so one thing that I started doing because you mentioned sharing at last year and the year before sharing was like this thing that if we had time for it we were like lucky to have a couple of minutes at the end where kids would stand up in front and they would show what they were doing. But it was very like surface level conversation for them. Like they would say, oh, today we made this. And it, I wanted them to go more into it. So this year I decided that I wanted us to join together in a circle at the end of class. And I specifically set my alarm 15 minutes before the end of class so that this way I have five minutes devoted for sharing at the end. And it's totally changed the way that they share out and one of the other things I do to try to encourage like depth of conversation 
is to base the conversation off of like an essential question that I started class with. And, you know, today, like, for example, today in fourth grade, we were talking about experimentation and art making. So the conversation sort of um, revolved around what sorts of experiments were you working on today when you were out in the studio? And then it became like, oh, well, today when Mrs. Ferrari showed us that we have watercolors now, I decided to try using the rubbing alcohol and the salt, you know, and, and then there were other kids that were in sculpture that were talking about, well, I was trying this attachment, but it didn't work. And so then I tried this. And it's so interesting with just a little tiny bit of extra time and a format and a, like a little bit of guidance to get them there. We were having like, in like my teacher area, it was just like, it was working a lot better for my situation to do that because then it kind of like had them think about it. Yours where it's like in the moment, like was it during open studio, like where they were working like in the moment or was it at the end when they were reflecting? I'm curious. Um, it was near the beginning of class. Okay. Um, so, you know, my, my classes start with first five, which is, it's a social emotional thing. Um, lights down low, music on, not talking, and it's sketchbook work time. So it's mm -hmm. dedicated time for them to have like independent exploration in their sketchbooks. Um, and they can use various dry media during that time. It's starts as like a literal first five and then I allow them a moment or two to advocate for a couple more minutes like fist to five and then from there I have them trickle kind of to our meeting place which is like a living room with some couches and then we have an opportunity to share like this is what I've been really curious about and working on and what has come out of that actually has started to drive our studio time in inquiry because the students are really curious as far as like what other kids are doing. So some kids are starting to develop thematic work where there's this one girl who's like drawing rivers and she keeps drawing rivers from different angles and perspectives and wants specific feedback on her rivers. And, you know, this last project that I've been doing with my second, third grade class is that this one kid stood up and he was like, today, I discovered that you can draw with your eraser and I covered my whole entire sketchbook page with pencil lead and I just erased this image out and he was beaming with pride and all the other kids were like oh my gosh that's so amazing which led us into a conversation of like oh what other materials in the room are erasable so it's it's both mm -hmm. ends, but you know just like you were saying like it's really incredible what happens when you save space for it because I think yeah. traditionally speaking we were taught that this critique or this language happens at the end of your project mm -hmm. and that's when you get feedback but it's actually the worst time to get feedback or to talk about it because you're so rigid and you right. have a sense of completion and so that has allowed some of the kids I think to to open up to be able to share some of this language or to share their thinking or to realize or for me to even have an opportunity to be like wow even though you made a mistake and you don't have a product to show at the end of the day like you just had some really amazing thinking as far as how you were going to put two things together. And those for me are the moments now that are starting to give me goosebumps, like all over my body. Cause I'm like, Whoa, okay, cool. They're really doing the work of an artist and this is going to yeah. get weird. And I like, I'm here for it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because it, it's always interesting to me to hear how people approach the different parts of like their class, because I find that 
people do it so differently. And I think that it's important for, you know, our listeners to hear about all the different ways that it could be approached because what works for one person might not work for another or some type of combination. So thank you for sharing your experience because I think it's really helpful for people. Yeah, I don't think that there's a right or wrong way to do it. I, you know, really for me, part of it is just like, what's going to help keep me sane as a teacher? Like, I don't, I have six classes back to back and I don't really have transition time in between. So like, how do I build the time for a transition that also honors their need for a transition? And it's, so it's just worked for me, but there are lots of other people that would be like, you know what, instead of giving them those five to 10 minutes or having the five to 10 minutes of like sharing time, like I really would rather them just get to their studio project and do their work. Because I mean, a lot of us only have like what, 45 minutes to an hour maybe once a week, maybe twice a week if we're lucky. And so it, it is a commitment. And I've had to like, ask myself this over and over again, okay, what it what happens? If the kids are doing first five and first five bleeds into like, first 15, and then they're all sharing. And before we know it, it's time to clean up. Is that enough in their art education to say like, we arted today. And sometimes mm-hmm. when I think about it, cognitively the choices that they're making the fact that they're executing their own artwork and then they're critiquing it's like well I mean we we hit pretty much like three out of four standards there so uh I'd say that's pretty good but it it can sometimes feel like a sacrifice and I think especially in tab teaching like that process of reflecting is so important because that's where the connections are made yeah agreed So I guess a, a question that I think this is this is a conversation that you and I have had before as I've tried to puzzle this out in my own head because um, there's there's the work that you're doing with integration like the Silk Road thing um, where you're bringing in inquiry kind of things. How do you how do you marry that to your tab practice um, in the way that you present it to students where you know, there's, you know, is it just like, these are more scaffolded times or because, you know, there's, there's a lot more intentionality in the connecting with the integration kind of thing um, more than sometimes when it's more student driven, I guess I'm just curious about how those flow together. Yeah. So I try, I try, I think about this as like my part of the job is trying to be a magician, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to make the learning happen as organically as possible. And I want them to try to figure it out themselves, but also know that I'm controlling the container that I'm presenting it in. But it's like that teaching analogy of don't unwrap, don't hand the kid a present and then unwrap it and tell them, oh, hey, like here's what's in here. You're going to love it so much. Can you guess what it is? I got you. I got you on my little pony. But really in integration and in inquiry, I, it's like, that's like, here's the present. And now I'm going to stand back and I'm going to watch you open it and watch you experience this moment of receiving a gift and not knowing what the gift is going to be. And, and when I think about that analogy, it's like, okay, that's really what I'm aiming for every time that I do an integration project or really anytime I'm introducing anything in the tab classroom, because I want the inspiration to be personally relevant. So if I start it from like a standpoint of a lecture of being like, 
well, one of our projects we did last year was about Africa and about the, the big open-ended question or exploration was, is Africa is large and diverse and extremely innovative. And that's what they're exploring through social studies. And so I knew that that was kind of my parameter and that the teachers had talked about, well, we really want you to kind of talk about like African art in the past, what it's like in the present and what like maybe Afrofuturism might look like and how it might drive the rest of the world. And so flipping this paradigm of saying, you know, Africa is no longer this continent where people need to be saved and that they're constantly hungry, like what we saw on television or on National Geographic of here's the poor starving children of Africa, but actually saying, actually, Africa is incredibly innovative and forward thinking, and we're going to be leaning on them here shortly to really come up with some better designs for things or artwork or so on and so forth. And so that was what I had been given as a parameter, but again, I didn't want to start the lesson plan saying like, okay, kids, here's what we're doing. And so from a tab lens, it was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to start everything that I do with visual thinking strategies. And I might curate some images, but really I want to start with observation, air out what they're thinking or what maybe some of their foundational knowledge is, and then go from where they're, what they're wondering about those things to like help them guide what we're doing. And so for Africa in the past, like so the way that we started it was actually, I knew that they had already started talking about it upstairs. And so I gave them kind of like minute to win it with sticky notes and they had to write down everything they knew about Africa on sticky notes. And then as they wrote down everything they knew, some of the things came up as like, oh, well, it has a large desert or it has seven different biomes. And these are the things that I'm learning or um, it, you know, on and on and on and on. And so what I then had them do is categorize their sticky notes into different areas of like, oh, this has to do with land and this has to do with this. And, and a lot of it ended up being about biomes, which I could have guessed. Um, and so on the side, what I had prepared were a bunch of pictures of what those biomes look like. And so then on a big poster sheet, I had drawn the continent of Africa and I just said, okay, why don't you take these biomes and try to match them on the map of where you think they are or where they exist. And it's okay if you don't know. And so they did that. And then we like we had two teams going, so it was a little bit competitive. And when they felt like they had figured out the biomes, then what I offered them was some images of artwork that had come from those various seven regions. And then they had to kind of deduce based upon what materials were available in that biome what type of artwork probably would most dominantly come out of that area. And what came out of that conversation was, is like, oh, like if you're near a riverbed, you probably have access to clay and therefore you have pottery. And if you're in a biome that's right near the Sahara desert, you most likely are going to need a vessel to carry water because you're going to be going across this desert. Right. And so then we're looking at it from this form of like this art of the past had this element of, functionality that we don't always have in art in the present and that then there was also um not only the function of it but then also the aesthetic and that that then homes home to like different tribes and and what might be identifying pieces or factors and so really that became a lot more of our integration in our tab is kind of like figuring out how to identify that and then where the sticky part gets is like ooh, okay how do i 
how do I have them make a project and not have it be misappropriation from a different culture and have it be something where everybody looks the same? Like we're going to make a little straw hut out of popsicle sticks. I don't know. I've seen it happen, but that's my worst nightmare. So um, really a lot of it ended up be becoming our conversation and then it turned into appreciation. So I sent them to the Smithsonian um, Museum of African Art and they had to do like a little virtual tour and then they had to find a piece of artwork that they did see think wonder on and then they presented back so it became more of like art history in that way but they still had complete choice over um you know which piece they were looking for i gave them actually a couple of different museums so they could choose the museum that they were gonna look for a piece of art for so you know it's still structured it's not when we talk about tab it's not full choice whatsoever um, it is definitely on that continuum or that spectrum. And sometimes I think in the integration stance, like it, it has to be within that realm, but what it wasn't is that it wasn't this directed project of saying like, okay, we're going to learn how they did X, Y, and Z. And then we're all going to do this project. I think that, I think that there is sometimes been inaccurately put forth that once you decide what level of choice you are that that's where you live and I think that realistically as artists those things are fluid um, but I think as in as art educators there's also times and places when kids need more scaffolding or there's things happening in the cultural context of the school or the learning environment that change the direction and need for where you're at on the continuum. And sometimes it's student behaviors and sometimes it's environmental things. And sometimes it's the introduction of an integration um, unit. But I think that the time for being really rigid about what, what choice can be is is I, I'm I'm hoping that people are seeing that it's a it is a fluid thing that you can move on this continuum when you need it and that we're not you know I don't want I personally don't want to be the person who's like you know the goal is just to continue to move further and further and further and further and further all the way down to full choice all the time when that may not be necessarily the best outcome for what's happening in your in your school and culture but also in the the reality of you know there's a lot to be learned in those skill building kinds of places or those material exploration places that have some more scaffolding in place and i think that um i think that that's as a community we've in the past been kind of um not always all or nothing, but sometimes all or nothing, but definitely um, that that continuum has always been like, the, I guess the impression is, is that you want to be a student directed as absolutely possible, um, but if you're not, somehow you're less. And I, I don't think that's the case at all. And so I think that what you're talking about is really beautifully talking about being in different places on that continuum at different points 
and how functional those places are um and it's fluid where you're moving them well i think it also depends on like outcome and your time frame like for that particular project we i knew we had two 45 minute class periods to do a quick integration and so part of my thinking was is like what's going to help them understand the culture or cultures because you know there are so many different countries in the continent of africa a little bit better versus knowing that like you know another option of of a place to take it from a tab realm is just saying like okay well you know if you were somebody who had to cross the sahara desert for example or live in one of these biomes how would you create a functioning vessel to carry whatever it is that you need and that could then be your open-ended exploration in the centers of saying okay could you draw it out could you plan it out could you paint it would you paint some kind of make up your own kind of design or or some different things like that but that's something that comes in consideration not only with your students and know your students and what level of choice that they need for any given project but then also knowing how much time you have or what the parameters are like my co-teachers I knew did not necessarily want a product a tangible product from it um and I also knew that they weren't going to have enough time like based upon their age like they were going to get frustrated because they would have had just enough time to come up with a good idea start to try to execute it and then they'd be done with the integration and not all of them have art this semester so it would have been harder to to manage but I think we've hit on most of the things that we set out to talk about. And I would say a fair amount of the things that we talked about before. <laughs> are, are there any last thoughts or anything that um, you want to share with our listeners in the TAB community? Um, things that you feel important or relevant or just um, would like to say before we wrap this up? I think as as we're talking and we're talking about different ways of going about things and how we each structure our classrooms or what we're doing that makes us excited in our work. I think the biggest thing that just comes to mind is, is somewhat of what you just touched on Abby is that there is a continuum. There's a continuum with tab. There's a continuum with choice. There's a continuum with integration. Really when you think about those four different types um, is that really it's just checking in with your gut and making sure that whatever you're doing feels authentic to you, feels authentic to your student body and sits well with who you are as a person. Like the things that I do in my classroom that work for me as strategies are all based upon what makes me feel whole at the end of the day, instead of making me feel empty. And so those are the things that I focus on and I pour my whole heart into because at the end of the day, I can be like, okay, I know that we at least did this and that makes me feel good when I walk out the door, knowing that students learned today and I saw evidence of their learning, even if nobody else saw it. And I think that that's like one of the hardest things of becoming a teacher is really knowing who, who, who am I as a teacher? What does that look like in practice? How do I set up my space, my environment, my room to also reflect that so that I'm showing up as me every single day. So I had some student teachers ask me that, like, how did you, how did you get the students to do first five like this? How did you get them to not fight you? And I was like, really, it just came down to the fact that I really believed that where we would end up and where we were going 
was worth all of the struggle that it took to get us there, much like the same way that it was like for me to set up my room as a tab classroom <laughs> my second year of teaching. It was like, I believe in this wholeheartedly and I have I have seen it and I know what I want this to look like and it's going to get there. I just don't know when and when the road gets bumpy, that's what you, that's all you have left to hold on to. You know, my sink is overflowing and clogged with brushes and acrylic paint and gross dingy dinosaur water it's like okay am I gonna stop everything or I'm gonna keep let them be continue to let them be artists and then suffer the natural consequences of not cleaning their brushes <laughs> I love the message of having faith in the process and the reflection piece both yeah. very important hard to do but very important super hard yeah Well, thank you guys both um, for doing this twice um, because I was I was the one in charge of the record button last time and that was on me. So <laughs> I appreciate it. takes two that. to tango, Abby. It takes two. <laughs> <laughs> I was there too. Let Abby take the fall. But thank you, Jen, so much for rejoining us to, um, tonight. It was a lovely conversation. Again, I always enjoy talking with you because I just... You're such a wealth of knowledge and I love that you're sharing all of your experiences with us and I love learning from you. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for listening to it twice. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I think this is like an exciting new chapter. I'm, I'm really excited to look at your guys' website and kind of get to reach out and collaborate. You know, I've gotten to that point in teaching where I wouldn't say I'm like self-focused, but in teaching a lot of student teachers and having people come and observe you forget to have time to reach out and kind of nourish that student in you. So I don't know, this is exciting. It's nice to have these conversations. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, by the way, before we end tonight, Abby, before we do, um, I just wanted to remind everyone that if you go to teachingforartisticbehavior.org, um, you can find a whole bunch of stuff on the website itself, but there's also a little blue button up in the corner where it says join our community and there it will take you to Mighty Networks, which is the online platform of tab and choice educators who are interested in communicating and learning from one another. So point you in that direction, Jen, if you're still looking for some after this, um, but for anyone else, you're welcome to do it. It is free and it's really a great um, community that you can be a part of. Yay. Come join us. Um, thanks so much for listening. And um, we apologize for this episode being out late in the month. We will have one in the middle of next month as well, but uh, we'll get this out um, before, before Halloween. So our conversations are relevant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you guys.